2: London, Michaelmas term lately over. London? Okay, you know where you yeah. are. A radical transformation.
0: Very radical People transformation. Are morally outraged with what's going well, on. I got very excited this week.
2: Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore
0: happened all across London. Every open square really would at have the a place
3: called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey what <laughs> the hell is that? <laughs> the man who's tired of London, he's tired of London. So life. what
4: was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's,
2: it's a very important history. A
4: handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a
2: piece of information we're missing here somewhere. And you sneak
3: through the city, meet. What, amassing what, yourself
2: in the sights. And Sounds, for the, songs, the Jewish stories. community,
4: who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing.
2: When did he think the second coming was going to happen? This yes, uh, Boris he wants to put an airport <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris is announced it is fatigue <laughs> yes the city is always changing uh, people frequently say to me yeah, won't it be wonderful when it's finished and I say no it'll be dreadful no, it'll mean it's dead inform and entertain that's what it's about
0: London is a modern Babylon that's very true
2: can we have some of the detail here Hello, it's Friday, January the 18th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolf, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, when I was told that we are going to be recording today at the BBC offices in Marylebone High Street I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it it frankly wasn't this We are in um, a, a complex that I'm told is going to be sold off within the next month or so Strewn with props, it is possibly one of the most random experiences I've had recently With me are Callum Thorpe, who is a singer and musician And Oliver Clark, who is into musical administration And we've been speculating as to what musical administration might be very cheap tuneful filing perhaps. Good morning you both. Good morning. Nice to see you. We should start by explaining what we're doing here.
0: We are here rehearsing for a operatic production, a new production of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, which is being performed by Silent Opera. Callum's going to be performing in it and I am sort of working behind the scenes, putting the pieces together and the jigsaw together and we're here rehearsing and we're performing at Trinity Boy Wharf in East London opening next week Wednesday on the 23rd of January. Now what's the
2: association with Trinity Wharf? It's all connected with with the guilds and so forth for the better navigation of the coasts of England and it's housed the famous company responsible for boys lighthouses... Lightships and pioneering techniques involved in those things. It says here. Can't see any obvious connection with opera.
0: I think maybe that was part of the appeal that silent opera. What we do, it's not necessarily traditionally operatic. It's 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 alternative, and we wanted a space which was ideally set on the river we're doing orfeo and the river is a huge part of that and we wanted the atmosphere of it and we went we looked at various venues and we went in there and we were just struck by the position and everything about it seemed to fit with the piece and the vision that we wanted to do with it
2: so this is a venue specific uh, performance as well
0: yeah absolutely Mm
3: it is it is a great venue for the for the, the the piece actually i mean it's very atmospheric and and it's you you sort of walk there and it really doesn't feel like you're in in central london at all i mean you can see you can see the dome and you can see canary wharf and those things but somehow you feel a little bit apart from it it feels a little bit almost a bit forgotten from the rest of the rest of the city
2: and how advanced are you at this point in the rehearsals? I wandered in through a rehearsal earlier on and it's very difficult to tell without the costumes and so forth to the, the lay eye.
3: Are you, are you sort of ready to go or still a, a way off? I, I think we're getting there. Um, we open in a, in a week so um, so we're in, we're in a fairly good place I think. Um, obviously we're still rehearsing out here in the studios in central London so I think we're moving to the, the venue this afternoon. And uh, hopefully we'll get some costumes, and the set should be in. And, and of course, it takes it to a whole different, a whole different place once you have the, uh, once you have the, all the paraphernalia that go with it.
2: But, uh, uh, that must be very exciting. And you, you're, uh, you, you imagine you're a musician, but what, what is your instrument, or uh, what are your instruments? I,
3: I'm a singer. I'm, I, I'm a singer. I sing mainly, mainly opera or concert work, but all classical. Classical music. Well,
2: we'll be hearing more from the director of Silent Opera, Daisy Evans, later on, and she'll be giving us uh, an in depth look at what this performance entails. We're going to move to the week's news, and of course, the the week's news in London has been tragically um, dominated by the helicopter crash that happened a couple of days back in Vauxhall. Um, and, and really uh, still investigations uh, ongoing there. We're going to focus on some other news, though, and, uh, well, let's start in Westminster, P- possibly my favourite borough council in London, and um, I almost want to start... We, we almost need a jingle or something to introduce the Westminster... a kind of mournful jingle. <laughs> what are Westminster council up to at the moment, Callum?
3: I think the most, perhaps the most interesting news here is this... Uh, Challenging on the EU sex shop ruling, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Ollie, you're better placed to uh, to answer this than me. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm intrigued by that reference. <laughs>
0: I am as well. You're not the only one. <laughs>
3: um, yes, this is extremely curious uh, about um, Westminster Council launching a legal challenge against a European Union directive. Uh, preventing license fees paid by owners of legitimate sex shops being used for enforcement against illegal shops. I'm, I'm very inexperienced in the London sex shop trade. I don't know how this will affect uh, uh, customers or indeed proprietors. But
2: um. What this boils down to, as far as I can see, is the right under debate, is the ability to charge officially licensed sex shops uh, quite a lot of money to police getting rid of the sex shops that have been set up illegally or or illicitly. And the sum in question is £29,000 per year per shop. That's how much Westminster Council wants the right to reclaim from licensed sex shops. Now, I have no idea what the average sex shop makes, but what about the principle behind it? Is this a good way
3: of uh, dealing with
2: trading offences, do you suppose?
3: Why should they be subject to different laws from any other any other business I mean if you if you ran a clothing business or a food business you would expect uh, illegal proprietors or illegal premises to be closed down automatically and, and you wouldn't expect to be charged for the privilege so I'm not sure that this is a uh, should be subject to any different laws at all whether or not you find the, the existence of these shops distasteful or exciting is, is, is beside the, the buy I think
0: yeah, but I suppose what you you have to we have to also say is that the proprietor of the sex shop, they're all saying the fees are disproportionate and comparing them to, for instance, something like a nightclub. I mean, you can you can see where their point is. I mean, it's it's very different. Sex shop, we're talking thousands and thousands of pounds. Nightclub, we're talking maybe a thousand pounds, but It's not really at the same level.
2: Yes, £1,905 if you're a nightclub owner. That's what you're going to get charged to boot out illegal nightclubs. What seems to come through with Westminster Council is they're very, very keen on finding excuses to uh, fine people and take money off Mm -hmm. people. It ties in with one of the other stories we've got going on this week.
0: Which is the... typical i'm a victim of this i have to say um the westminster council profiting from parking charges and cutting this this money we're spending on keeping the roads safe yes well let's start with your story ali what uh, what happened to you Oh well, no. I mean, I was, I was. It wasn't actually me. The first time, it wasn't me. I have a friend, and she has one of these wonderful electric cars, and supposedly she gets free parking with her electric car in the borough of Westminster. Is that right? And indeed, it is. They're quite. It's quite a cute little car, but it doesn't go very fast. The um. But she was given a parking ticket, and she wasn't supposed to have one. And she was never. She went through the proper procedure to say, "Well, I have an electric car," and the rule changed, and no one had ever told her. So that was the start of it. But I'm afraid I'm not very good. I'm always parking on yellow lines. I'm not a very good law-abiding citizen when it comes to that. So I'm always late.
2: Is it your general experience, and of course we don't have to look at Westminster Council specifically on this question, but is it your experience that um, the parking measures are on the wrong side of merely being efficient?
0: Well, I, th- I think you could probably say there's an argument for both. I- I- I'm I've, The yellow peril, I was always grown up to call them when you get the parking ticket and i've always hated them and you always avoid them and i always feel awful when i see them doing it to someone else's car because normally that person is probably just five minutes late for whatever reason and i think maybe they should be try and find a way to make it slightly fairer so that the the circumstances in which it happens are understood and maybe the penalty shouldn't be as extreme
2: should we have some of the numbers here? What are we talking about in terms of the revenue raised and the revenue invested, Callum?
3: Well, it seems that Westminster is the uh, the highest earning council with uh, their revenue up to 38 million from 2010-2011, which is a rise of uh, 8.7%. And we have a quote here from... Uh, the the Labour head of Westminster, Paul uh, Dimoldenberg, who says that they are using it to subsidise the council tax and have been for decades. I was quite surprised at the baldness of that
2: quote. I mean, I I think we know that that stuff goes on, but he seems quite proud of the fact that the that uh, anyone setting foot inside Westminster is potentially going to be funding the residents there.
3: Yes, he does, and. I can understand entirely that I think uh, that council finances have to depend on fines, and people who do uh, park recklessly or, or illegally you should pay fines, and it's quite right that these should help the borough. But I wonder to the extent which a borough seems to be dependent on on parking fines in order to make ends meet. And thirty eight million or fifty million, as he said, puts in the quote here, seems to be an awful lot of money to to depend on coming from random a random income, essentially.
2: Yes, interesting dissimilarity there between the figures. 38 million uh, quoted 2010 to 11, and uh, the head of the council saying 50 million. Um, I notice as well he mentions profit. Uh, Other councils uh, mention that it's a surplus, but he is actually calling it a profit. There's something very worrying about that. This is this is parking law. This is not supposed to be a profitable business, surely. Yeah. Let's look at the investment side of things. Though the Institute of Advanced Motorists say that spending on road safety education and safe routes to schools it decreased by eighteen percent from uh, one hundred twenty-seven point five million to just one hundred and five million. That's about twenty-two million down right across the UK. Westminster countered that the Institute of Advanced Motorists figures are wrong. Don't take into account uh, the high level of retail and entertainment visitors, maybe going to some of those sex shops, and uh, the surplus is spent on improving roads, transport, and infrastructure. Whereas just a minute ago, I thought we were told it was about council tax more broadly. Some very confusing stuff going on here. What about crime generally? I know we've got, uh, unfortunately, far too many crime stories going on at the moment. We've had assaults, we've had... Uh, what about mobile phones?
0: Oh, well, no, I remember uh, twice. I, I mean, I must be a very naive person. I was I was in the same coffee shop about 18 months apart with a friend and uh, my phone was on the table. We were chatting away and somebody came up and put a map over the table and said, how do I get to this place? And being a kind citizen, normally, I said, oh, well, you have to go turn right turn left whatever and anyway as she then left and went out the door I said to my friend oh she went the wrong way I didn't think anything of it 20 minutes later, I couldn't find my phone, and then I realised what had happened. Well, I should have learned the lesson, but then 18 months later, almost to the... Well, not to the day, because it was 18 months, but 18 months later, the same thing happened again. I was taken in by the same thing, and I can't believe how stupid I am. But but not having a mobile phone, having a phone stolen, losing a phone is terrible. When it's stolen, it's such an invasion, because you can't live without it. You've lost numbers, you've lost everything. Okay, we can back it up on a laptop, but I'm very bad. I don't back my phone up very often.
3: Mm, Yes, it's quite crippling, isn't it? Even if you just leave it at home for a day, it's... um, it's like
0: having your left arm cut off.
3: Yes, I think, I think you don't realise how, how dependent we've become on, on, on these gadgets until you, you don't have them with you for a day. Do you know, I've, I've just taken myself off Facebook, just as, a, just as a, an experiment, really, and my daily phone usage has gone down by about 50%, I think. My, my iPhone battery lasts for a full two days now instead of r- running out around tea time.
2: So. I, I feel I sort of want to welcome you across to, a, to <laughs> a, a, a club with a very small membership, I must say. No, it's true. I couldn't live without
0: Facebook now. Well, this is the problem, I think. You become totally dependent on it. But I I, I divide my time between Twitter and Facebook. But Twitter is actually easier to do on the phone because it's much simpler. You just press the button and it goes. Whereas Facebook, you have to wait for the page to load and all of it goes on and on and on.
3: Do you have uh, sort of profession-specific stuff that you uh, use on your phone? Well, I think the the musical profession and especially the sort of the singer community is very is a very small, really quite close knit community. Most people know know everybody else, and so Facebook is naturally the sort of thing that people gravitate to because you can very easily keep in touch with what is really quite a small world, anyway. Um, so that's it. You're an outcast now. Yeah, I feel like I may have committed professional suicide by by by, by taking it off, but I thought I'd, I'd give it a go. It's been uh, been an
2: interesting interesting test. I'm very tempted to try it myself. This whole uh, idea of uh, people coming up to your table... I was in a Starbucks one time, and I can say that because the Starbucks were in no way at fault, but there was a community support officer, a rather overzealous type, um, who was going around uh, table by table and covering up the... uh, He only seemed to be targeting single women, actually. And he he would cover up their phone in exactly the way you've described, and then uh, very proudly announce that he could have just stolen the phone. And the counter-argument to that is, yes, but you're a community support officer, so... Uh, you know you've taken it up to the next level yourself by, with the uniform
3: Do you know we had a security guard exactly like that at university who used to walk around the library covering up people's laptops and people's wallets and things and again if you'll see someone in a uniform walking past you don't really expect to have to keep an eye on them or uh, watching your back pocket all the time so I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it's a valid no, uh, a valid demonstration. Uh, no, there
0: must be something better he could have been doing with his time, I'm sorry I mean there's people dying and there's crime and there's ev- everywhere people are getting mugged on the tube, there must be something else that he could be doing other than warning people, I mean we all have to be vigilant but we live in a world where we're surrounded by people who maybe aren't so pleasant in their moral compass, let's put it like I, that
2: I think his motivation was revealed by, uh, I, I had my phone sitting there on the table and he took one look at me and just went no, no, and moved on.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> the don't mess with me beard. That's what okay. it is.
2: Okay. What else have we got to talk about? Um, any other happy story? Let's do the happy story. Dullest wall,
3: nominating oh. London's dullest wall for a street art makeover. Um, so the people at Global Street Art are looking to find new places for street artists to paint with the permission of the owners. And I think this is a um, I think this is a wonderful idea. I think that um, I think that good street art can be can be really fascinating and it really brightens up. Um, brightens up the streets and brightens up your commute to work or what have you and I think that it I think this is a wonderful thing this is
2: a bit of a Marmite issue, street art, isn't it? Some people just cannot stand looking at it and however elegant or carefully crafted or clever the graffiti is, it's still graffiti in a lot of people's eyes and the, the garish colours and so forth don't go down well with them.
3: Well, perhaps, but I think it's slightly a question of context as well. If you happen to be uh, wandering through an underpass or a subway and you see it sort of scrawled all over the walls then, then maybe it's, it's more threatening than anything else. But I think that if you're... If you're in a more sort of developed or, or, or more populated area and you see something that's obviously obviously taken a lot of time, a lot of effort that's required an in, an investment from the, the part of the artist, then I, I, don't know, I find that very, uh, very interesting and, 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 and worth looking at. Where would you go to look at Street art in town? I'd like to be surprised. I would like to. Uh, well, I think, I I think like Callum's the- just nominated his wall.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I like the uh, when you walk along the South Bank. There's that place just after Festival Hall and all of that area there, where there's it's amazing and there are people. I don't know what we call them. We call them they they're people that ride bikes and they they spray paint things and it's actually amazing. You go and look and it's incredible. I mean, all yeah, well,
2: those uh, the BMX guys and the yeah, skateboarders. I mean,
0: I wouldn't want it at home or on my garden fence, but. When you're walking past there, I'd rather see something pretty and colourful than I would just see a blank grey wall.
3: I, I honestly don't know. I, I don't think I'd have a, an objection to it on my own wall. I think um, the problem is when you when you sort of wake up in the morning and feel that there have been people, people lurking places, spraying things where, where maybe you wouldn't want them to be doing that. That might be uh, more of a problem than... <laughs>
0: I'm not sure it's the right thing for London. I mean, we're very traditional in London. If we were in Berlin, I mean, look, this is saying that it was actually a German paint company. They were called Montana, and they gave... A global street art, they gave it a hundred cans of paint to help like, make the city pretty I mean it seems like quite a, a Deutsch thing to do for want of a better expression, I mean in England we're so traditional and we frown upon these kind of things so much but it's quite exciting and quite different
2: do you, Really do you think we are so traditional? I, mean, and we, I noticed you said England there but in London are we are we so traditional?
3: I think that London is different from, from maybe the rest of the UK, I think it's uh, a bit more cosmopolitan and a bit more uh, open to outside influence but I think the UK generally can be a little bit uh, can have a little bit of an island mentality which might, um, m- might manifest itself as traditionalism sometimes.
2: Hmm. I sometimes wonder whether London's got an island mentality but I don't yes. think it's a conservative island. <laughs> Oliver, what about you? Where would you go for decent street art?
0: Um, I think they should. I'd like them to have more of it around the Barbican because I find going to the Barbican a bit like being in a concrete jungle. So I think if we could liven it up a bit that would be rather fun.
2: Callum has just been taken off to rehearsal we're down to two I, I could be talking to myself by the end of the show if you, if you get called off as no, well no
0: I won't be called off I'm all yours I promise you but <laughs> when we were talking about he was very unkind Callum because he made reference that I would be more, more knowledgeable about the sex shots but in this show we're doing this Lorfeo for silent opera his character Plutoni we are actually playing the character as a little bit of a sex fiend so you know I'm, I slightly resent that I was given all the blame
2: I adore the fact that you've waited for him To leave the room before you do that oh, no, Even though now, even fine. though this is going out
0: no, He's taller than me I'm, I'll say it when he's not here, it's fine, he won't mind <laughs> I won't be judged
2: Oh, you will oh, um, Probably, yes <laughs> Let's uh, let's go up the Shard. The view from the Shard, and that's the name of it. It's not uh, it's not just the thing. It's the, it's the name of the so it's called the, the view platform. From the Shard. Yeah, and uh, it's it's been open, or not just open, but the embargo on news stories has been lifted. So now we can talk about it and show the pictures and so forth. Our very own Matt Brown went up the Shard and had a look out, and he has given a report on Londonist.com of what he thought. It varies wildly from the standard press release, so this is well worth a look. Just have a look at Inside the View from the Shard on Londonist.com. The Standout figure for me was uh, that the price twenty five pounds. Okay, uh, not cheap, but uh, sort of what you'd expect, perhaps. But if you don't book and you want an on the spot ticket, one hundred pounds to go up the Shard.
0: Well, uh, it wouldn't be for me. I mean, I wouldn't spend a hundred pounds on it. But I think for twenty five pounds, I would probably, I would take the bite and go because you know you should. We should make an effort and see these things once in a but £100, no, I'm sorry, it wouldn't be for me.
2: So what's the general tenor of Matt's report here?
0: Well, first of all, I've got to say everyone should read it because it's very funny. I mean, you start reading it and you're not sure what to make of it, and then it actually begins to make you smile, and it actually makes me think, actually, I've got to go up there. Having just said it, I don't know if it would appeal. I'm going to pay my £25 and go up there. But there are some things in the report which just I thought were were wonderful. I, I love this fact that you can go up, the, you don't have a time limit that you've got to be up there, but you're sitting up there, but no, there's nothing to drink, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to do anything. I find that hysterical. You know, we're sending these people up there for £25, and we're not even giving them a cup of tea and a biscuit. I mean, in the great English tradition that we were talking about <laughs> earlier, we should really give them that. And then I love this. I'm going to read it aloud because I think everyone should read it. I don't have real, uh, much of a toilet humour, but it just made me laugh, where Matt says, the toilets are going to be a major talking point, full stop. Well, we, we know what's going to come. We can't think of any other Kazi in the capital where you can take a dump while watching the tourists potter around on HMS Belfast. I thought that was hysterical, and I am going up there. Yes, I've heard about these famous toilets that allow you to look out whilst relieving yourself. No, it's rather fun and rather novel. Why not? It's a bit different, isn't it? It's sort of... Why not? But the other thing is, I've just come back from um, a trip to Cape Town and they're saying that Matt was picked a day when you couldn't see very much. The visibility wasn't very good and you'd pay £25. I was in Cape Town recently and when you go up Table Mountain, which it's a different view, it's a natural monument, but it's you know, you, you if the visibility is going to be bad, they don't open the mountain. You can't go up there. And maybe we need to think along those lines. I think it might be better, you know, because we're charging people all this money to go up there. But you might go up there and see absolutely nothing.
2: Yeah, they do agree to uh, allow you to change the day of your visit if the weather is really disastrously bad. But uh, no refunds, unfortunately, if the cloud cover prevents you from seeing what's going on down below. There's also a little bit of controversy about the accuracy... Uh, Well, it's not really controversy, it's just uh, the the accuracy of the digital viewfinders that are on the top of the shard there. They detail a whole bunch of things around town, but uh, they've got it wrong. So uh, central St. Giles, for example, has been moved over to Shoreditch. Uh, St. Dunstan in the east becomes St. Dunstan's. The ancient fortifications are labelled as Roman's Wall, whatever that's supposed to be. Remarkably slapdash, given the expense that went into the construction of the building overall.
0: A little bit slapdash. My mother would have said that it was a man who wrote it all out. That would have been the thing. If it had been in a woman's hands, it would never have happened. But the other thing which I have to say, which Matt does mention in the report, is that it's £25, it is a lot of money, but it is on a par with places that so many people go to in London like the dungeons like Madame Tussauds as Matt says you know so it's something different it's bringing new people to London people want to go out there and see London in a different way that's a wonderful thing
2: well as you know audible.co.uk sponsors Londonist Out Loud, and they are offering you a free digital audiobook from their catalogue uh, 60,000 digital audiobooks on offer their 30 day free trial of the audible service is all you need to sign up for to get your free audio book and of course you can download that onto any device that you see fit Uh, apart from washing machines you're definitely not allowed to download it onto those Uh, you don't want a soggy story you can burn your uh, book to a cd you can listen to it in the car and it's yours to keep whether you decide to cancel in your trial period or not all you need to get that free audiobook is to go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash londonist and click through Before we go back to the stories, I I wanted to say uh, thank you for the many guest suggestions that have been coming in from you, the listener. Uh, My favourite one uh, so far, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's come all the way from Kentucky. So, Rob Mayer, I want to thank you particularly for that suggestion. Which part of town do you live in, Oliver?
0: I live in Battersea. I'm
2: just just—I'm going to just scan down my list of uh, fire stations here to see if we can spot the, any of these uh, relevant to you because it's not good news on the fire stations front here. We've got the, the planned fire station closures list which has been released and this comes on the back of police station closures and uh, A&E closures that we've been mentioning in uh, very recent weeks. Under the new plans, 12 of London's fire stations will be closed. 18 fire engines will go out of service. They're going to move a couple of them around and there will be 520 fewer firefighters, uh, and the the plan there is to save 45.5 million pounds over the next couple of years. Is your area affected? Can you see?
0: Um, not directly. I see. There's one in. I've seen one. There's on the list. There's one in Clapham, and uh I also I went. I studied at the Royal College of Music, and I see there's one in Kensington and Chelsea and Knightsbridge, which was near there, and another one down in Chelsea. So it's. That from there were two fire engines in the, in Chelsea and now there's only one but I go past it every day on the bus and I, I just think it's very sad you know that uh, uh, it, is it happening because people don't want to do these jobs anymore but we seem to have so much unemployment and so many people in the country who are not necessarily gainfully employed well we should be trying to help these people take on jobs like this and putting back into the country I mean if we support them then maybe we have to have a little bit more choice in what they're going to be doing and what they're doing to pay us back
2: It does seem remarkable, and I I can't help wondering as well, because there there are a couple of places here where you notice the names of areas overlapping with some of the previous closures. So, for example, we were losing the A&E in Lewisham, and here on the list we find that the fire station in Newcross serving Lewisham is also closing.
0: Uh, But you hope you don't live in Lewisham? Well, rather, yes. If we have a fire, we're doomed.
2: (laughs) Now, one of the misconceptions we we should point out here is that um, the fire engine that attends the fire that we hope you don't have in uh, your house, listener, Mm -hmm. is going to come from your local fire station. And, in fact, there's a very good chance that your local one will be attending a hoax call somewhere or something like that and the fire appliances from one of the other Stations will come to your place, so it doesn't necessarily affect you. Well, you can't help thinking that this has got to be bad news. Uh, no, it's generally. just
0: it's just sad, really. I mean, you know, we. I live in um, near where I live. There is a fire station. If I think about it, it's not mentioned on here, but they have in the they have in the in the back of the fire station. They have a building which they've erected, which is obviously for them to practice and for them to do drills in. And you, I've walked past and I've seen them doing these drills. And these people work so hard, and you know, they provide such an amazing service. They save lives, and they're a little bit forgotten. And now we seem to be doing away with them and what do we do to replace these people i don't know
2: this i found quite interesting some insight given here into the speed at which fire appliances are likely to reach you so the idea is that uh, the 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 target is to get the first fire engine to come to you within six minutes and the second within eight and then they measure how many fire engines they need according to their estimates of how long it takes to get the uh, engines to you within those time frames they've actually moved a couple of fire engines across four of the boroughs that have an average first response time of over six minutes they're getting an extra engine which uh, should help a little bit worrying of course should we finish on a lighter note there must be a lighter note here So, oh yes um off with your trousers
0: oh this is st- i wish i i didn't take the tube on what day was it? it was on monday i didn't take the tube on monday and i wish i had or i wish somebody had told me this was going to happen because i didn't know but it was no pants on the tube day 2013
2: now no, we, we should just say this is the american usage of pants
0: Oh, sorry it's, a, it's an americanism i have to back back that up it's not english it's a very american because we call them trousers in this country not pants and um but h- what happened was a hundred people on monday monday the 14th of january for the london leg we call it the london leg of the no pants brackets trousers if we're English on the tube 2013 this was conceived in 2002 by Improv Everywhere they were called the Prank Collective and it aims apparently to cause scenes of chaos and joy in public places well basically what happened was there were 100 people on the London tube, they were wearing their underwear, but they weren't wearing anything else on the lower part of their body. Well, they were braver than me because it would have frozen to death. Um, Yes, it's a curious time of
2: year to have the no
0: trousers day. Well, maybe that's the point, but I think it's a bit cruel. I mean, it wouldn't have done for me. My legs would have turned blue.
2: Well, yes, I mean, it, it doesn't uh, flatter all sorts of uh, lower body anatomy. To, no, exactly.
0: To be... No, everything's shrunken. Um, <laughs>
2: thank you for, for nailing that down for us. Um, I, I wonder what the point of this is, really. I mean, I do understand the, the idea of joy, but uh, I'm just trying to imagine seeing 100 people shivering a bit with well, you know, with morning... no trousers on. Is, is that is that <laughs> going to spread joy?
0: I don't know, but this morning I was on the tube and there was a man in shorts. Not shorts, they were sort of cut off trousers, so they went below the knee, and I thought, he must be mad. Well, maybe he was just recovering from Monday when he, it must have been a lot warmer if he'd done it on Monday when he just had his underwear on. But I think if I'd seen it, it actually would have made me smile and I think January is pretty grim and we although the sun is shining through my window now, this lovely Friday morning, but it's a bit gloomy January, so if you see something that makes you smile, it's always a bonus.
2: Am I a bit repressed? I think I'd have found it a bit threatening.
0: Well, it would depend on the face that went with the underwear. <laughs> I think that, that, that would be, I wouldn't be threatened by a pair of legs, but depending on the face that went with them, maybe I too would have been threatened. But I'd like to think that maybe I I would have smiled.
2: Well, with no link at all, I would like to take you back to an interview that I did with uh, Daisy Evans earlier on. We were speaking about silent opera's La Fayette. Well, I'm uh, um, here with uh, Daisy Evans. We are shivering in the cold of the abandoned BBC <laughs> building. There's quite a draft coming through here, I'm afraid.
4: Yes, it's quite damp in here as well, so it's overall quite hellish conditions, which I think is appropriate for Monteverdi's Orfeo.
2: How is this working for the performers, though? Are they uh, are they coping with the with the environment here?
4: Yes, well, we've got quite industrial heaters upstairs, so they're all right. It's just in in the wilds of my office. It's not it's not brilliant.
2: Oh, I'm enjoying all the the props around it. Let's start with the the story of Orfea.
4: So the story of Orfea follows the classic original Ovid, which is um, Orfea and Yudice get married, and they we open at their wedding feast. And Eurydice goes out one last time to look at the stars outside and a, and a horrendous thunder, electric storm brews and she gets struck by lightning and she dies very, very quickly. Orfeo, in the meantime, is having a great time with his boys, singing his songs, having a, having a general kind of party. And then a messenger comes in and tells him that Eurydice is dead and the entire atmosphere is completely shattered. And Orfeo, instead of questioning Um, on accepting the fortune says well actually okay i'm just gonna go down to hell and get her back because i'm orfeo i'm half god i can do it um so then he he goes to the river lethe um, which is uh, the waters of which wipe out your memory um the concept being that to go to to hell you have to be completely stripped of your ambition your hope your knowledge everything so we find on the on the banks of lethe we see corante who is the spirit that guards the gates of hell And he's sort of feverishly gathering memories from people. And Orfeo comes and says to him, you've got to let me across. And he says, I can't, you have a mortal body. So Orfeo sings him the the great set piece in the middle of Act 3, Por Spiritu, which is the the big aria. And through that, he conjures up the image of Eurydice for Caronte. And Caronte is kind of blinded and seduced by this beautiful image. And he um, momentarily forgets his duties to guard the gate. And Orfeo sneaks across the river and gets into hell. And then in Hell, which is the fourth act, um, we see Pluto and Proserpina, the, the king, queen of Hell. And Proserpina um, begs Pluto to let Eurydice go, to let Orfeo have her back, because he's singing so sweetly and he's crying and she, she wants to help him. And is
2: she seduced by the music or is she simply being benevolent?
4: Um well, there's a whole backstory with with Proserpina um, that she herself was actually was a nymph and like Eurydice and was um, gathering flowers one day and, and Pluto bl- blasted forth from from hell and um, and raped her and took her down as his queen and and she's trapped there with him. So we're sort of going down the line that because she was denied sunlight, she sees this almost her life playing out again and she so desperately doesn't want it to happen that she sort of seduces P- Pluto into letting her go and say, well look, you've got me, you don't need Eurydice, you've got me. Let her go. Like don't don't let this horrendous fortune happen again. So um so he says okay, and then he says, but he has to walk out of hell and not look back. Which would seem like an incredibly simple condition to put on it. But actually Pluto knows that Orfeo is not strong like a god he knows that Orfeo has the human weakness to question and the human weakness of, of doubt. So he says, OK, he can walk back, but he's got to not look back. And Proserpina says, OK, well, thank you very much. And um, then Orfeo starts to walk out of hell. Very jaunty music. Um, and then he's walking around and then suddenly he has a kind of short, sharp shock of, hang on, what if she's actually not following? What if it's a joke and she's not behind me at all? And he starts to question and but why but why am I doing this? why am I here? And then is the fatal look back, and he turns over his shoulder and there she is, but fading, and he's lost her forever. so he he kind of you know he gets dragged out of hell, hell expels him, and then we open the final act and he's you know lamenting on the on the on the banks of the, of the river that he crossed earlier. And he says, oh, how could I ever love women ever again? And there's Bacchae, who are the um, crazed gods of, of Dionysus. They're walking around and they hear him damn women. And this is where the most interesting part of silent opera um, comes in of this particular interpretation of Orfeo. Because anyone who knows the story of Orfeo will know that the original ending is that when he comes out of hell, he says, I can never, never love women again. There's no one as perfect as eurydice And the Bacchae hear him and they tear him to pieces for his for saying that he hates women and they, that's it, he's dead now Monteverdi wrote this ending um, in 1607 and he took it to the court and they said oh, I'm really sorry Monteverdi that is too violent for the court, the ladies of court to watch you have to go away and write a happy ending so he said oh, okay and he went away and he wrote a happy ending where his dad Apollo the sun god comes down and takes him into heaven to look down from the stars and be forever with Yudice in heaven so we've still... The only, only the libretto survives of the, of the original Bacchic ending. So what we've done is we actually give one lucky audience member who holds a golden ticket the choice between two endings. So we stop right at the end of A Lament and there's this big hellish atmosphere is built up and the character of Musica um, asks the person for the choice and they say either save him or damn him. And then in a split second we pick up with whichever ending the person chooses. So save him or damn him. The choice is yours. That's that's
2: a wonderful one. So you're the emperor with the thumb hovering uh, on the horizontal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's really exciting because, of course, we've all heard the the idea of, of him having not to look back, yep. but I haven't heard that, that mm. idea that he gets ripped to pieces yes. because of damning women. And I mean, it seems a, a little bit muddle headed because yeah. a lot of the classical myths treat sort of rape and things like that in a very offhand yeah. uh, sort of fashion. And yet, that's the mm. that's what the back eye mm. feel about damning women. That's peculiar, isn't it?
4: Well, the Bacchae are women. They're all women. They're all crazed women, followers of Dionysus, and they kind of um, they they. They don't generally tear, tear apart men in general, but they do sort of destroy men as part of this kind of sexual orgy kind of um, sort of lust.
2: Oh, so it is orgiastic rather than uh, yes, p- yes. punishment, straight punishment.
4: Um, they, 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 kill, they kill specific men for punishment. In the original Bacchic myth, they kill Pentheus and they tear off his head. So it, it does reference that with the death of Ophaya
2: fascinating okay so clearly the uh, choice of endings is a very interesting way has that got precedent
4: well i think it's it's just it's a it's a great way for us to to find an interesting ending because i think actually funnily with this piece the ending feels very peculiar in its original setting it does that i think that's the problem with orfeo that what you know everyone knows it up until he looks back and then where do you go from there? It's mm. such a huge moment of kind of dramatic tension and, and crux that really you know it should just be cut there and you know but what does happen to a fair his life has to end somehow. so that's, that's the choice that we give you. like did will he be saved as a, as, uh, a god like his father, or he'll, will he be killed as the mortal that he is?
2: Quite clearly, opera suffers. I'm going to say suffers, maybe benefits, I don't know, from uh, the image of elitism, Mm -hmm. along with ballet and uh, fine art. Is this designed really to bring something new to opera, to to sort of break down some of these barriers?
4: I would say what we really want to do is to bring opera to something new, because opera is... It's like you know, it is just the most one of one of the most beautiful um, dramatic art forms. I think you know the music is just exquisite. The, you know the, the emotion. It, it's not opera itself, which is actually elitist, because if you show someone what an opera is, like a lot of the time they will. They'll appreciate it. It's not like, oh, I think what, what is stopping people from going to the opera is the, the experience of going to the opera. And all that's available to us nowadays is to spend a lot on a ticket and go and sit in a plush auditorium, um, be separated by a huge gap of an orchestra pit and just be separated from that from that intense emotion. And it can feel very daunting. So all I, all I was trying to do, the original seed of this, was just to find a way where people who would go you know to two interesting things would would may not go to the opera house would come come to see opera just in a completely different setting
2: so so what is that setting how does yours differ
4: so ours is um well it's it's by the banks of the thames it's in a uh, well not an abandoned but it's a completely empty desolate uh, old chain store complete open warehouse um and you know every ticket price is the same there's no hierarchy you walk in you stand there's no seating or the one there is seating but it's not sort of you know it's not regular seating you sort of find a place to sit and 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 enjoy the opera from there and then you walk from space to space so it's um it's it's site specific um and you know you you there's no there's no obligation for you to adhere to the rules of of uh, of an opera house which is also what silent opera houses, you know it doesn't matter if the person next to you is kind of crackling a sweet wrapper or chatting to their friend or doesn't matter what they're doing because you you can just simply get up and walk away from them or you can put your headphones on and not listen um
2: yeah, we need to talk about this headphones bit mm. because this is quite innovative as well isn't it can, can you talk us through what you're doing there
4: well i mean to, to lead straight on from that from the setting that we're we're in this place i mean where could you put an orchestra in a site-specific venue? That's that's a big problem of opera and why it hasn't become site-specific sooner, I believe. So then I got to thinking about, you know you know, how, how can you do that without then cutting out everyone, without doing, a, you know, a, a reduction, an orchestral reduction. So without actually cutting out the whole orchestra and saying, well, I'm going to replace it with three flutes and an oboe, mm-hmm. you actually say, well, yes, we'll record everything that needs to be recorded and then have live in the space as few musical forces as you need. So you still get the complete opera. And then I thought, well, instead of just putting it through the speakers, And just kind of making a pretend acoustic atmosphere to then use that as a further level and put everything through headphones. So to give everyone this kind of unique personal world that they can really, you know, it doesn't matter where you are. You can walk around and it feels like it's just for you. It feels very unique and very personal. Yeah.
2: So it's the let me it be clear. It's the music coming through to you, then the the performers' voices uh, are something separate and real real world.
4: Mm. So what we have is we have a, what's called a continuo section, and all the singers, and they are all they all have uh, in ear monitors that give them what's pre recorded, and then they they perform live, and they're all equipped with microphones. So everything then is mixed in a sort of central brain nerve center, and then sent back to the audience. So what the audience hear. Is a kind of complete mixdown of the whole opera, you know, with violins, horns, cornets, everything. But what's actually? But then you take the headphones off, and someone might be miles away from you, right across the other end of the space, um, and might be only one one theorbo playing. So it's very skeletal on one hand, but very full on the other.
2: That's very exciting. And have you tried this technique before?
4: Yeah, we've done two productions before. Um, if we started off with Dido and Aeneas um, two years ago. And then this time last year we recorded the University of London Symphony Orchestra doing um, the, the, the music for Laboem. So that was that was um, a kind of total total sound world in the headphones that
2: one I was starting to think it was all about doomed to couples uh, <laughs>
4: well, <laughs> yeah
2: now what about the uh, I, I noticed that you're not carrying in your hands clumps of your own hair so I'm presuming things aren't going too badly at the moment you you're roughly on track I presume
4: Well, we are on track I mean you know this a particular type of staging you know whether it you know doesn't matter if it's us sort or of, any anything that relies on an audience there's always going to be that final hurdle of, of an opening night where you let the audience in and suddenly everything changes because people can't stand where you where you told them to stand you know they have to really think on their feet so at the moment we're in a really good place if we were going to do it and we had three people watching and you know we haven't we haven't put the technical with it yet so we've got we've got all the tech to go we've got the audience to go so there are two big hurdles still to go in a week
3: well
2: best of luck i I know you're moving to the uh, the venue this afternoon aren't you and and you're, you're trying it out there
4: Yes, we are. Well, I
2: I hope all goes well. And thanks for taking the, the... I know it's kind of precious time at the moment, so thank you for taking time out, Daisy Evans.
4: Thank you very much.
2: Daisy Evans there, and of course the LoFeo project, well it's about a week away as we were saying earlier, do you you know the exact dates and times, Oliver Clark?
0: I do, we open on Wednesday the 23rd of January, 2013 and the show runs six shows a week through to the Sunday the 10th of February at Trinity Boy Wharf In London, tickets can be booked at www.silentopera.co.uk and the statistics are amazing. I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to come on board because this medium opera, which I was passionate about, you know, it's bringing it, this is a way young people are excited about it. People are going to the opera who've never been to the opera before. I mean, it's putting it out of the theatre and putting it into the psyche. It's an amazing way of presenting opera. It's a revolutionary way of doing it. It's new, it's exciting. If you've never been to an opera before, don't be frightened, come and do it our way and then just... Enjoy the journey and see what you think. But it's a Trinity Boy Wharf, opening on the 23rd of January, and we'd love to see as many people there as possible. Old opera lovers, people who've never been before, whoever you are, it's something you should try.
2: You seem pretty good at dates.
0: I'm quite good at dates. I'm not very, I could never remember biochemistry at school, but dates is something I can do.
2: You sound like an ideal candidate for our historical quiz.
0: Only if it's Tudor. I want, when I was growing up, I wanted to be Elizabeth I, so what, what, what is it? <laughs>
2: I don't know if I can promise any. Let's see what we've got here. Um, a lot of disasters going on here. No, Nothing to do with uh, with the Tudor period, I'm afraid.
0: Oh, we well, try me anyway. We'll see how we go.
2: OK, good man. So uh, it's five questions. It's essentially the week in uh, London over the last week, but not necessarily this year. So the 14th of January, 1437 is our first one. And uh, it's a fairly easy one. The Great Stone Gate at the south side of which bridge in London collapses, taking down two bridge arches and several houses with it?
0: I tried to peek then, I have absolutely no idea.
2: I said it's a fairly easy one there was only one bridge in London at that point, so you've just Lon- got to name the it bridge. it London Bridge? It was London Bridge
0: Oh, that's very good
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a, a fantastic start, Tuesday the 15th of January 1867, uh, the ice on a lake in which park in London gives way while hundreds of people are skating on it, dozens drown Hyde Park Not Hyde Park. It was a clever guess, I don't know it's uh, it's Regent's Park Lake I've never heard of this disaster Park before Lake.
0: No, neither have I, oh. I confess
2: Okay, uh, one down, one up 16th of January 1599 Poet Laureate Edmund Spencer is buried in Westminster His coffin is borne by other poets of the time What do you think they threw into the grave with him? A quill yeah, you're not far off. You've got one of the two items. Uh, they threw pens. And, and what else did they throw into the grave of poet laureate Edmund Spencer?
0: Is it very silly to say paper?
2: <laughs> What's on the paper? Ink. <laughs> yeah, go on. It's like pulling
0: teeth. It's like pulling teeth. I ate ink. I, I don't know. No, that's not a clue. That oh, was, that wasn't a clue. That was an
2: expression of despair.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not doing very well. You'll have to put me out of my misery. Poetry.
2: Oh. And we'll say, what I'm going to say is. Uh, or oh,
0: prose?
2: Well, poetry. In oh, fact. okay. Yeah, I'm, go- I'm going to give you that one because you were, you were most of the way there. I was nearly there. Thursday, the 17th of January 1997, at which London courthouse does a jury decide that Shimon Sarafinowitz, the first man to be charged under the 1991 War Crimes Act, is medically unfit to stand trial? Which uh, Which courthouse did that happen at? The Old Bailey. It was the Old Bailey. Nice work. Which means that I think you're only one down and three up. This is looking pretty respectable, I've got to say, and still not a Tudor well, in There we go. You see, no,
0: not a crinoline anywhere.
2: So, final one, uh, 18th of January, 1882, Alan Alexander Milne is born in Hampstead, North London. He would become a successful author, notable for which series of books?
0: Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh, okay. It is well done sir very good i'm very proud of myself
2: four out of five yes nice work listen we've uh, we've plugged uh, silent opera's work plenty there w- what about you in the coming weeks other than the whole silent opera project what have you got going
0: on work all work and no play at the moment i haven't i haven't yet got past the 10th of february when when the 10th of february is gone then it'll be on to pass just new but at the moment the focus is the silent opera Lord fail that we're working on here in Marlborough.
2: Give us one more reminder of the website before we, uh, before um, we go, call it a
0: day. The website is, you can book tickets at www.silentopera.co.uk
2: Oliver Clark, thanks for being here and uh, if you could pass on uh, thanks as well to Callum Thorpe, who is upstairs um, singing okay. as we speak.
0: A resident sex pest. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much.
3: Here she stands
2: and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests Callum Thorpe, Oliver Clark and Daisy Evans. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
1: My edge, waiting for the river's catch Straining for the bluey
3: waves calling from the shore